Welcome to your found family podcast where we don't just have a heart to heart, we connect soul to soul. I'm your host, Lizzie, a certified coaching practitioner who found family outside of blood family. In our found family, you are accepted and assured that you are not alone. Subscribe and tune in for educational and empowering soul chats with women from all over the world, talking about well-being, personal growth and development, and mental and emotional health. Welcome back to another episode of Found Family. I'm really excited. I have another very special guest with me today, Lindsay, and we're going to be talking about living with agoraphobia and depression. Lindsay Musgrove is a 29-year-old who is currently a peer support specialist working part-time at a local mental health authority. She's also a writer and enjoys philosophy. She wants to bring mental illness not just to the forefront, but also bring the knowledge of lesser well-understood disorders that are often overlooked. She's a local artist and a cat meme enthusiast. Love that. (laughs) Hi, Lindsay. Welcome. Hi. (laughs) It's so good to have you here. And thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And I love what you shared in your bio about bringing the knowledge of lesser well-known disorders, because as you and I had connected on Twitter and we were talking about picking a topic, when you shared agoraphobia, I actually had never heard the term before. Um, So I'm, you know, really excited to just hear from you, hear your story, learn more about it and be able to spread this awareness. Yes. Yes. Perfect. And so the first question is, you know, again, for those of our listeners who might not know, can you share with us what is agoraphobia? So agoraphobia, I think um, initially people who uh, do may know what it is. I think the first thing that comes to your mind is um, that they're afraid to uh, be around people, mm-hmm. um, thinking that it's, it's well, they would be correct to think that it does have an element of social anxiety. Um, Agoraphobia is actually, in definition, it's a disorder, a a, a phobia and a disorder that being in um, wide open spaces um, can be really fearful for the person who's Mm. you know, going through that and dealing with agoraphobia. Um, I know for me personally, it's being in open spaces and large, like a, let's say like a shopping mall or an outdoor festival um, where there's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And um, that's how it affects me personally is, is, is those two situations is, like being kind of, how would I describe this? Um, kind of like you feel like every like you're being closed in, even mm-hmm. though you're in a large open space because mm-hmm. there's so many people like a shopping mall or something similar. So, yeah. <laughs> that makes total sense. And I was actually going right. to ask in terms of, you know, what are some signs or symptoms that, again, for someone who doesn't know what this is, you know, to kind of become self-aware and be mindful of, you know, what 
they're, you know, going through, just hearing your story, being able to, to think um, that maybe this is something that they can, you know, identify with and, you know, learn more about. Are there other things? So being closed in, and I have a comment on that too. So I'll, I'll you know, I'll share um, a little bit as well, but definitely want to hear more from you more specifically about like other types of like signs or symptoms. So feeling like you're getting closed in, are there other things that you kind of experience? Right. So um, it's, it's, it's a, it's like a whole, like, you know, there's different names for different phobias and that's, that's, it's a whole phobia within itself. And it definitely Mm -hmm. has an element of social um, anxiety and anxiousness um, that plays in, plays into it mm-hmm. um, uh, speaking from my experience um, I can tell I can tell you one story I went to uh, I think it was I want to say three or four years ago I went to the state fair here where I live in Texas mm-hmm. and um, you know it's, it's you know, the fair, it's like a festival type setting, you know, this all sorts of things going on, people walking all around you. And I had went into the, like the, the food court area. Um, and there must have been like hundreds of people just, you know, eating, you know, doing you know, enjoying the fair, and I was walking through the the, uh, the food court, and I was just thinking, "Wow, I feel like so nervous right now." And mm-hmm. the 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 social anxiety part of that started to play in with, you know, like, is everybody looking at me? Like, mm. you know, it's kind of like a, a self-conscious, like a fear, you know? And mm-hmm. I started to feel like it was so odd because I was just in this wide open space and it was in an outdoor setting, but I felt like just everything was kind of closing in. Mm-hmm. And it was it was just very scary and I sort of, you know, from, from that point on, you know, the anxiety got worse to where it was like, I just, I had started to have a panic attack. Mm. That was actually going to be my follow-up question slash comment is that in the way in which you described it, things specifically Mm -hmm. that you felt like the walls were closing in. I have Mm -hmm. suffered from panic attacks since age five five or six, mm-hmm. like it, I was very, very young when I experienced my first panic attack. And right. again, although I hadn't known of this type of phobia where my feeling of, oh my God, everything feels like it's closing in was mm-hmm. also in social settings due to my emetophobia. So I mm-hmm. had this crippling fear of vomiting. If I smelled it, heard it, saw it, anything, it was just this overwhelming you know like the shakes like my body would get cold my Mm -hmm. heart would start racing I 100% my throat felt like it was closing and the walls felt like they were closing in and also what you were saying like the signs were like I was in a full-blown panic attack where 
I wouldn't be able to speak. I wouldn't be able to walk. People who were around me in those episodes when I would have severe panic attacks, I had to prep people ahead of time, like my friends and family, you know, and tell them, listen, when I'm experiencing a panic attack, like you'll know because you'll see it on my face and like I'll start hyperventilating, but like don't touch right. me, don't talk to me, don't look at me because there is right. this like, overwhelming fear of is everyone looking at me? Oh my God, what do I look like right now? They're totally judging me. Like, and you think all of these things too in like a nanosecond. And that was what right, was right. also mind boggling is that I would have and experience these triggers of anxiety. And then it would trigger the panic attack and then it would spiral downward and just feel like, oh my God, all eyes are on me and the the room is getting smaller. Even if you're outside, you literally would feel like the world was closing in on you. So I, I can understand and empathize because I have been there too many times to count and it is scary. It's, It's probably one of the scariest things because you feel like you're having a heart attack and you feel like... You know, and I guess I hadn't made the connection that it, it was always happening in Blick and it stopped me mm-hmm. with emetophobia. And now what I can also, you know, say is, is like agoraphobia as well is it was prohibiting me from doing things in my day-to-day life. Like I didn't even do mm-hmm. my school talent show because I was so terrified of like being on stage and in public and, you know, just this crippling fear of like, well, what if I throw up in front of them? You know, and it just, it spiraled, but it, it was truly terrifying. Right. And it's, it's, it's interesting you say that, um, I, I'm 29 right now. Um, when I was in high school and also going back into, um, like middle school and elementary school, I was really interested in, uh, acting, you know? I really wanted to put myself out there and, and do, you know, be an actress. And um, I was in I was in school plays um, from time to time. Uh, I remember when I was, I want to say, five or six years old. That would be, that would have been 1996. I actually, uh, my parents took me to audition for to be uh, the next Oscar Minor, excuse me, Oscar Meyer Wiener commercial kid, you know. Oh, you wow. Sing, yeah. Uh, oh, I want to be an Oscar Meyer Wiener, you know. Uh, <laughs> All right. It was something like to that extent. But um, uh-huh. I, I remember going to that and I was put in front of the cameras for the rehearsal or the what would that be called? Uh, like the tryouts. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, they kind of cued me up and, you know, did the hand motions that they, I, you know, I guess they would do to start you off. And I just froze. And, you know, I was like five or six years old. And I was, I, I actually hadn't didn't really want to do the tryout anyway, and my mm-hmm. parents like literally they pushed me. And I mean, in some ways, yeah, I could see that is definitely a good thing to help a child, uh, you know, to grow into what they may want to do in life. Um, but at the same time, 
that was my first real experience when everybody was, uh, you know, kind of staring at me to sing the song and the cameras were on. And I ended up not saying a word the whole time. Mm. And um, that would have been my first real experience with agoraphobia. Got it. And that, that actually was going, that you already answered the, the question that I was going to ask as far as like, you know, if you remembered like how old you were when it started. So it, it sounds like, and I'll, I'll actually be turning 29 um, soon. And when this episode airs, I, I might already be 29. I'm not sure I'll have to check my calendar, but um, so we're well, happy much, birthday. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. And happy belated birthday to you. <laughs> right, thank um, you. <laughs> I, what, I don't know when your birthday was, but happy belated. August. Um, <laughs> oh, August. Okay, nice. Yeah. So I'll be, um, I'll be 30 this, this year. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I know that that, like, my gosh, when that realization comes to, it's like, <laughs> but, but in a way, I'm like, you know what, though? It, it's really great to, like, think that, you know, because now as you're saying these things, it's it's making me remember things from, like, when I was closer to that age, too. And as I'm getting older, I'm, like, really honoring my journey that as hard as these things were to go through, like, it did still shape me. Um, and to think right. that, like, I actually suffered from, um, well, yes, the anxieties, but I also have um, hyperhidrosis, which I've actually, I don't think I've talked about this on, like, any episode or any social yet, but um, basically it means that I have hyperactive glands and I had to get surgery to stop my hands from sweating because they would, you know, get swollen and hurt and enable me to do certain things. And my parents took me to something similar as a young person as well. And so it was like the metaphobia with, you know, the, now I can identify it as being like right. you know, agoraphobia as well as the hyperhidrosis. I also kind of froze. It was like for, um, do you remember mud M U D D? It was like a clothing line. Right, I do actually. <laughs> okay, so that was something that my parents brought me to because, in a similar way, like I, my like true essence is this, like, you know, fun, outgoing, like person who just like really right. wants to be like in the center stage. And all of these phobias and like, you know, having lived with OCD forever, like this disorder just like enabled me at that time from doing things because I didn't know what to do to help myself. Right. And I also like I, the the thing that I'll never forget was that the person like went to go shake my hand, and because I was sweating so badly and I was so nervous about that, I like mm -hmm. shoved my hand into my jacket and gave him my fist, and like didn't actually shake his hand. And I'll never forget that experience because mm. I remember being so mortified even at that age. I must have been like maybe nine or something. Um, mm -hmm. So like it's kind of crazy, just you know hearing the similarities and like we're you know again a similar in age and it's like it seemed like we both kind of were going through similar things at similar ages even then um right so I just find that fascinating because you know for a child to be going through so much at such a young age it's like it's just like wild to me right yeah and yeah definitely like just in general, living with mental health issues is goes far back into my life. Um, and it seems, you know, getting slightly off topic, it seems as that when I had gotten older, 
uh, you know, growing into a teenager and then in my early 20s, it seemed as if things were getting worse, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, At this point in my life right now, I'm actually in a recovery, you know, I don't want to call it a recovery phase, even though, you know, having uh, episodes and such could happen again. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more like, I guess you would call it a recovery stage. Agreed. And what an empowering self-awareness you just had. I really honor that. That's awesome. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course. And, and that, that is so beautiful. And, and, Part of what I was going to sh- to ask you as well is like, you know, what what is life like now living with it? Mm-hmm. Um, and you sort of helped, you already kind of answered that question, but is there anything else that you would like to add that, again, might help our listeners to get sort of this window to look into of, you know, what, what life is like for you now? Well, okay, so... I I live with actually multiple disorders. Um, agoraphobia being one, uh, depression, anxiety, and as I think the what I consider in my mind to be like the real like heavyweight for me would be that I live with schizoaffective disorder, which is a um, it's on the schizophrenia spectrum um, of disorders. And what's so interesting is that all of that all of that stuff actually ties in within each other. Um, you know, living with um, a schizoaffective, it comes with psychosis. Uh, you think about paranoia. And then you mm-hmm. think about how uh, anxiety plays into that. And then you think about how agoraphobia plays into that. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've always uh, have been like a shy person and someone who's been, I would say, quite afraid of, of people. Um, and then it's it's like to to get older and see like this you know it's not just you know a shyness like it's an actual issue that I'm dealing with it it helps me to uh, deal with and try to put together a personal solution for myself in order to overcome Mm. the feelings and the symptoms the, the emotions any way you want to say it, the fact that that there is a label there mm-hmm. is sort of like it's sort of like not just let's say the doctors, but it's also like other people um, have kind of pretty much acknowledged that hey, you know, this isn't just a shy phase that you went through in high school or as a kid, or this isn't just, um, 
this isn't just, let's say, like some people would tell me it wasn't a cop out because I'm, I'm so shy or um, growing up uh, or, you know, people, what I'm trying to say is people around me actually took it seriously and how it was mm-hmm. affecting me in my everyday life. Um Another thing that's interesting is uh, with agoraphobia is even though I still deal with it on a daily basis, one of the biggest things in my life that I've had to learn um, going into the recovery stage of life is how to, how to, I'm not going to say how to face my fears. I think that's the wrong thing to say I think the the way I should say it is um how to find the strength to face my fears Mm. because there isn't there is a step before facing your fears in my opinion there is having to find the ability to say um am I going to be able to do this? Not just, can I do this, but am I going to be able to do this? Um, it's, it's, everything is a process. You know? mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. There's so many things that you just said that just like gave me like the chill in the best way possible. And I want to okay. just like, take a moment to like really honor this conversation. And this, this right here is why I call these conversations soul chats is because it's like my soul talking to your soul, getting deep, like this is beautiful. And this this to me is like one of the most like meaningful things of life is being able to really see each other in this light, you know, like in a way that's so raw and so vulnerable and just like so Mm -hmm. real um, I really just like feel led to take a moment right now to acknowledge like what you shared about the word like acknowledgement, because mm-hmm. the way that you just phrased it saying that, you know, when you are able to put a name to something, it's like a, a feeling of acknowledgement that mm-hmm. what you're experiencing is valid and has, you know, reasoning. I mm-hmm. didn't put it together in that way until you just said that because one thing that I found to be very helpful when I learned what obsessive compulsive disorder is, I told myself like, wow, it's so great to label what I'm experiencing, but I am a firm believer that like, like I don't like to label things, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I consider myself to be pansexual, like someone who gener- like genuinely loves all humans like it's not a matter Mm -hmm. of female or not female like for me it's just I love people and you know so I don't believe in labeling things because every human and everything is complex and like has its own spectrum just like sexuality just like knowledge and everything but so I was in this weird like tug and pull with my own self thinking well why am I celebrating the fact that I'm labeling something when I don't like labels and it's not like the way that you just phrased it made me have this realization that it's not necessarily that I was celebrating the fact that something can be labeled now. It's this sense of acknowledging that what you're going through is valid 
and acknowledging that, you know, what you're experiencing has a name with, you know, with knowledge around how to overcome that. And that, that right there is where the power is. It's not just like knowing these things, but now with the knowledge, being able to do something about it. And that ties in beautifully with the second part of what you just shared is like, you know, giving yourself the acknowledgement and, and the acceptance that you like now are able to, um, to overcome and to, you know, find ways in which you can find that strength. So I just Mm -hmm. like wanted to to touch on that because again, like I, I think that that was like so beautifully worded and, I, I don't know. I just like, I experienced this revelation just as we're talking. <laughs> so I don't know if that right. So, you, but I just wanted to share that. It's, yes, it does. And, you know, for me, the labels were important in a way, but for me, the labels weren't for me. Mm-hmm. They were for the people around me. That's true. So that makes sense. So, so it's like, cause I, I already, pretty much knew what I was dealing with in a way, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the foundation, the basis is I wasn't okay. I, I, I'm dealing with, you know, these symptoms. And even though at some point I knew, you know, specifically what I was dealing with, I, I didn't need the labels for myself. I needed them for mm-hmm. the people around me in some ways because, Society is really interesting in that way. Um, for me personally, I I'm someone who like if someone's like let's say someone's over emotional or really stressed out about something, it really uh, it affects me. Mm-hmm. So to see and to hear people around me, some of them family, some of them. Uh, you know, people, let's say at my high school, for for me to have a label, especially for my family, it put perspective, it put it in perspective for them that it's not okay for, you know, these certain family members to, to uh, treat me like uh, I was making stuff up or as if I mm. was... Um, using, uh, like, being shy and afraid of people as a cop-out to uh, go places or, uh, you know, friends. Uh, you know, someone asks, you want to hang out over here? I would be very nervous. I would say no. And I would always used to say, well, I'm very shy. You know, I, I don't, I, you know. And the thing is, is that society doesn't exactly understand what, mm-hmm you deal with and it's and that's why I think labels to some extent were so important to me at that time especially it's because they weren't for me they were for the people around me mm-hmm. and that's understand so me. important yeah absolutely mm-hmm. that is so important and that makes total sense as well so thank you right. for sharing that and with the, you know, some of the, the things that you were sharing about 
overcoming and coping, what, what other things have you been finding most helpful um, in coping and in recovery? Are you, for example, therapy, medication, self-care, that sort of thing? Is there something that, um, or a few things that are so, helping? So all of that. <laughs> for okay. Me. Um, I know some people aren't for medication and um, I, I personally have chosen to take medication um, on a regular basis. Um, I also see a therapist um, like every two weeks. Um, and I am, I'm huge on self-care. I am really big on self-care. It's, um, I was just, I was just talking to someone, a coworker, I think it was yesterday. Um, I had said, I don't know who I was talking to about it, but I had told them that even though I had started the recovery stage about, I want to say, five or six years ago or so, it wasn't until about two or three years into into the recovery stage is, mm-hmm. is when I had to learn that there was another level of recovery because mm-hmm. it was it was medication that really kind of built the foundation for me to um you know start to get well Mm-hmm. But then I would, for the longest time, I thought, well, you know, medication is going to fix everything and I'll be fine or, you know, uh, I'll be normal and, you know, and go ahead and, uh, you know, just do what I love and get on with life, right? Well, mm-hmm. also, I really wasn't like, super, super educated about recovery at the time because it was just like the beginning for me. And uh, I I realized that for me, at least there was a whole nother element of recovery. It was, it was, it was medication as a foundation for myself, but then it was the ability to um, recognize my emotions, recognize my symptoms, be able to implement the self-care strategies that mm-hmm. I actually had learned. And uh, a lot of self-realization, self-care, self-advocacy, um, all those things is really like, I, I don't know. Hmm. I would say it was like the, the second, the second stage from my recovery. And I think that's where I am right now is where I am implementing all the, the self things, the self-advocacy, the self-realization, the self-care, mm. um, the, the building up, uh, trying to um, better my self-esteem, all the inner things that medicine you know, doesn't touch. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's yeah. That again, 
I, I honor your self-awareness and I totally hear you and agree that sometimes, you know, and this, as you said, is kind of like one of those, um, those things in the mental health space that it's like, you know, some believe in this, some don't believe in this. I, mm-hmm. I am one to say that if, if step one is medication first to assist mm-hmm. you as a tool, not, you know, this forever crutch to lean on or, an, you know, right. like something to use indefinitely, but when it's used as a tool to assist you in living life with more ease and more calmness, then I am all for it. I mean, truthfully, mm-hmm. and I may have shared this before, but I was taking Xanax. At one point in my life, I was a recent college graduate. My anxiety really, really hit like an all-time high where I was having, well, I was experiencing all-time highs in high mm-hmm. school, primarily like middle school, high school, and elementary school. And then I was you know, okay in college, and then it kind of peaked again. And at Mm -hmm. one point, I might have been maybe like 23 or 24, um, where it was at this like all-time high again, I was Mm -hmm. not able to function. I was not able to go to work because I was having so many panic attacks back-to-back that Mm -hmm. I was terrified of it happening in a meeting or, you know, what have you. So, I finally made the decision to go to the doctor and I was prescribed Xanax. And then at one point, because it was so heightened, they had to increase the dosage for me. Um, However, that was something that I knew I needed in that, you know, that time in my life, because again, doing things on a day to day had become so, so much like I I was dealing with so much anxiety and so many panic attacks that I couldn't Mm -hmm. physically do anything. And that was what helped assist me. And truthfully, even though I hadn't seen a therapist at that state, like during that period of time when I was on the Xanax, I was Mm -hmm. being a therapist for myself and telling myself, okay, Lizzie, you know, see how long you can go before taking another one. And then that would happen mm-hmm. and I would wait more time. And actually, as I'm reading this book about freeing yourself from OCD, um, this is part of the therapy that you can do for yourself for OCD is to be able to, to give 15 minute blocks of time in between obsessions and compulsions to, um, you know, basically reframe your, the way that you um, behave after experiencing mm-hmm. an obsession. So without even realizing it, I was already following these four steps even years ago. And it got to a point where even just having the Xanax in my bag just gave me like a, a peace of mind. And I, I mm-hmm. didn't need it as frequently. So I was kind of like, I used it. And I would say that I only really needed to use it for like a few months, but I would only take it when I was having a panic attack because I didn't like the way that it made me feel it made me feel mm-hmm. very numb and I felt very zombie-like. <clears throat> My personality was not even coming through because the medicine was like numbing me. Um, mm-hmm. But it helped me during that time. So I, I think that, you know, again, contrary to what some may or may not think about the medication, I think that it, it can be seen as like a temporary solution to you know, assist as a tool. And then right. like the therapy, the self-care, 
you know, these are all inner workings and a, a mantra card that I actually just drew this morning before we got on the call was true abundance is an inside job. And the word abundance mm-hmm. is like in cursive. So really we can substitute that word with anything. So it's like true self-confidence is an inside job. True self-worth right. is an inside job. True confidence right. is an inside job. And that is what I'm learning the more that I'm doing research about, you know, like human behavior and psychology and like understanding personalities. It's like when we feel more secure and like have a higher level of certainty that we do have the ability to recover and that we are, you know, stronger than our thoughts and that we are not our thoughts, it increases the, um, you know, we're, we're able to like really be present in, in our recovery. And I, I really mm-hmm. see it as a way that like helps strengthen that. Right. Right. And I agree. I, I know, uh, I know meeting people throughout the years, people, um, well, people who are now actually, we aren't linked up anymore. Basically we aren't friends, all sorts of people. Um, unfortunately, because there was quite a few people that I really did care for. Um, I noticed that, um, Many people, uh, you know, they are dealing with mental health issues and they take, a, a, you know, a medication that they were prescribed. And and then, you know, so many people say, well, I still uh, feel a certain way. I still, I still feel uh, this way or that way. And uh, the medication isn't, you know, working or... And I was actually, you know, in that same position. And as I, my phone's just going off. As I was going, um, as I was getting older and getting more into the recovery stage of life, I realized, well, how much of what else uh, isn't changing, how much of that is the medication not working versus um, uh, something I need to work on within myself. Mm. Um, wow. And I, I I say it that way because I'd rather not, I'd rather not call people out. I don't like that. But I'm wondering, you know, looking into my past, how many people have I personally, personally known like people I have gone to high school with that um, were dealing with mental health issues at the time, how many people were actually dealing with medication-related issues versus um, something that they needed to take time to, to work on? Because I know for me, that's what it was for me. And in certain um, in certain aspects, it still is, too, as well. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I was just, I I was just talking to, like, my, my mother, my father, my fiancé. I was just telling them something. I said, I said, when I realized that the agoraphobia and the fear of people 
when I realized the way it was holding me back from doing mm-hmm. so many things and being in so many opportunities, I was just like absolutely flabbergasted. I was, I was like, wow, like, because you always hear, you always hear people say, oh, well, the worst thing that could happen is that they say no. And it seems so cliche. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you want to ask someone for something or ask someone for an opportunity or, or, you know, whatever it might be. I had just recently came to uh, the conclusion, in which I believe is a conclusion, is that it isn't so much that phrases, uh, the worst they could say is, no, it isn't so much that the worst that they can say is actually physically say no. It's that even though you are putting yourself out there, the fact that even as uh, how uh, how afraid you are of the, of the situation or the outcome, the fact that you put yourself out there and the word no is just a word and you realize that it's after they say no, if they say no, that that doesn't, it doesn't, you know, hinder you. It may make you feel bad. It may make you feel really bad. But the fact that you put yourself out there and the worst that really did happen was they physically said no, and then you move upon that point and keep going, it's such a freeing feeling. Mm. I, I don't know if I'm explaining it right. You um, are. I, I think you're explaining it perfectly. And, and, you know, even first and foremost, the way in which you are explaining anything is coming from your heart. It's coming from your truth. It's coming from your experiences. So it is right because this is your, you know, this is your um, reality. Reality. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I I definitely can share that you know, with everything that you just shared, my reality, that this is resonating with me because I am also seeing this to be true in my life. Mm-hmm. And so the right. two things that I would love to add to what you just shared, and thank you again for sharing all of that, is that, you know, first and foremost, there is this very sort of tough love question that we need to ask ourselves, which is, you know, how much of this is medication related and how much of this is, I actually need to do the work. And this is something that right. has been on my mind for quite some time, but I feel excited to use this as an opportunity to share it. So one of my recent revelations is in like mental health in um, like and, and fitness, for example. So I mm-hmm. started my fitness journey, which is basically just me saying that I recognized that I was not taking care of my body in the way that I know it deserves to be taken care of. And, mm-hmm. you know, it it's so easy for society and for, you know, for all of us to kind of look and like, okay, well, you know, you need to do the work to, mm-hmm. to you know, get fit and feel strong and feel healthy. Like, that requires work because we look at physical work as like more tangible and there's this Mm -hmm. different mindset or perception that it's different than what we need to do in our own minds. 
And what mm-hmm. seems to me is that, you know, in a simple way, you can't like wish to lose weight. You can't like take a magic pill that's just going to make everything go away. You can't like, you can't expect someone to stop their relationship with food. It's like it takes a, a person to get to a place where they realize that it is inner work and it all stems from like our mindsets and the way that we're able to reframe things. So when I was right. able to really look at my current situation and say, uh, Lizzie, you can't even walk up subway stairs without huffing and puffing. Like you live in New York mm-hmm. city. You have to, like I had to get to a place and this actually circles back to what you said. It was like, you know, I knew that I was able to do these things because I, mm-hmm. I like tell myself that even with OCD and with anxiety and having had depression, like I know my inner power, I know my inner strength, and I'm going to do what I can to, to muster up whatever courage that I have and, and push through anyway. And I was like, you're doing this because it's going to make you feel better. And it's taking right. a year and a half to, like, you know, get me to a place where now I'm kind of, like, at the shape that I was in college, you know, when, when I was, like, more active and, and, you know, I definitely wasn't eating better, but I was I was doing other things, you know, that were helping my body feel more strong. But it, it all starts from the mindset. And, you know, like, now, now I'm kind of like, okay, well, I hope that makes sense because the realization that I've, that I've been having and like the correlation is making sense in my brain. So I hope that I like said that in a way that makes sense. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then there was something else that I was going to say about, um, Oh, about like the, you know, if someone says no and that's the worst thing. So in a similar way to how I, I had this realization that it's like, okay, if you want to, you know, improve, your um, like body's ability to to function and do all these things you have to do work in the same way it's like reframing the mind with the word no like I had to reframe my mind and I've been in sales for 10 years so this is where that comes from but like for me the word no just means not now and so it's we're able to find the strength and know that we are able we can reframe our minds you know, in, in all areas of our lives, whether it's at work or with fitness or like with our own disorders. And I, I think that that's just like my, my takeaway from all of this is like, it's being able to put yourself in a position of power and, and knowing what your inner power is to do something. Right. And can I, can I add that? Please. For yes. Me, <laughs> for me, <clears throat> it was a step-by-step process like mm-hmm. I think it I think it it will still take me a little bit more time to understand the process I went through completely but um as far as like that phrase the worst someone could say is no for me that was rooted in uh social anxiety anxiety and agoraphobia Mm-hmm. You know, it was all connected, you know, and for me, the, it was just, it was a very step, small step by step process. I had to first realize is what I had to realize was, well, if I don't go for that 
let's say opportunity. If I don't ask this person, um, I won't, uh, I won't be told no. Right. But at the same time, like, well, if I happy with where I am at right now, and am I going to continue to be happy with where I am right now? Mm-hmm. I had to, I had to realize that. And then I actually had to, I personally had to get to a place where I was like at rock bottom because of my social anxiety. I had to realize like, I don't, you know, I don't want to be in this specific position anymore where I'm just afraid of everything. Um, and, you know, at, at that point in my mind, it was like, well, the only, uh, the only uh, direction I can go now is up because it, it, I've come to the point where I'm just not happy with as much social anxiety as I'm dealing with. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I'm refusing to even try to deal with it because it's so, the fear is so overwhelming. But yeah, it got to that point where I was like, I'm not, I'm not happy to see my being in my house all the time you know Mm. because I'm so afraid of people and then it was like well let me take this one situation and it's a small situation and it's a huge possibility this person may say no but since the situation is so minor uh, Mm -hmm. in in what it is it'll be good practice and mm. I started to slowly practice and build my way up. It was a whole, it was a whole process is what I'm trying to get at. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that, what you just shared about, like, you, you recognize that you've gone through a process and because you are beyond, like, the step one, there is this point where it, it sounded like you were, you know, trying to recall, like, okay, so what, what were my steps? But I think that the way that you just, again, in like moments of self-awareness, like really reflected and, and kind of walked us through like what those steps were for you. I, I think mm-hmm. that's fantastic. And like, just shows your strength and how you are able to use your strength to persevere, mm-hmm. to overcome, to be resilient. And I, you know, that was like what you just shared was also resonating with me because in a similar way, you know, I was able to overcome emetophobia. I was able to overcome scrupulosity, which is the OCD subset of, you know, with associated to religion. And now I'm mm-hmm. suffering with ROCD, which is like relationship obsessive compulsive disorder. And in my moments of what do I do first? How did I even, you know, what were the steps that I took to overcome the emetophobia and the scrupulosity? I think that in a similar way to what you just shared, that it, it it got like to a point where I was so fearful of throwing up and I was allowing religion to overthrow my ability to, to you know, function because I was so terrified that God was going to smite me or I was going to be cursed or the devil was going to come out and do something. You know, like I was so consumed mm-hmm. by so much fear that I, I think I agree with you that my, my, one of my first steps was also getting to that place where it's like, I need to do something to change this. Right. Like I, I can no longer live in so much intense discomfort 
And it's just reminding me of some of the things that I've been learning in my life coach training that when we associate so much pain to something and so much pleasure to something else, that is like this human force that drives the, you know, like helps in, give us the, the strength and the courage to move past because it's like we're, we associated so much pain and discomfort with what we were, what our realities were, that that was what mm-hmm. propelled us into our future. And, you know, right. we are that, now in our recovery. Yeah. Does that like, does that make sense? Like, does that resonate with you? Oh, most definitely. Actually, everything, everything you're saying resonates with me, um, which is so interesting because um, I I actually uh, deal with to some degree of, um, and I can't say it right if I can't, emetophobia. Is that correct? Emetophobia. Um, I I mispronounced agoraphobia a million times too. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I have- um. Uh, religious issues myself as well and mm. I actually I actually deal with trichotillomania which is uh when you uh it's a disorder where you pull out uh your hair and I pull out my eyebrows and eyelashes and I've been doing that since I was nine years old and that's around the time my anxiety you know had started to just build up and get worse and um yeah that's so interesting I can I I I, I just see so much in common with you (laughs) Mm -hmm. me too and and this is also like in addition to what I shared about the soul chats like this is the other the other pillar to found family podcast is giving people the safe space to talk and feel heard and feel understood it's like right we, we have found family in one another and we feel that we like truly understand the other and what we're going through and like that is that is like my mission is like to use this platform as a way to help people feel like you're surrounded by people who understand you who get you and Mm -hmm. who can relate to you you know like we all find our own common denominators so Mm -hmm. that's beautiful and I'm, I'm so grateful to hear that and so glad to hear that and I agree like I see so so many similarities and I feel like we could keep talking you know about so many right. topics, so I would love to. Have I could you, go on, yeah. <laughs> I would love to like have you on Tom Family again. And as I'm, as we're, you know, basically at an hour already, I'm like blown away. The the one final question that I think again would just be like the extra cherry on top of this awesome conversation is: Do you have any advice, or is there anything that you know someone who is struggling with um, agoraphobia right now could do today to really like you know, step into their recovery and just like feel empowered to take a step. Mm-hmm. I would say, um, I would definitely say take that small step, but before you take that small step, have some sort of way that you can come to a self-realization of what it would take for you to take that small step just mm-hmm. to begin with. So like um, for me, it for me it is like talking with people in a, in a, in a deeper sense or um, writing. I love to write and um, or creating some sort of art. Um, watching a meaningful movie, something that will help you pull yourself into the to the realization of: Am I ready to take this this first step? Mm. 
That's beautiful. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm going to end on that note because there's so much truth and power in that. And I I definitely want to encourage everyone who's listening to do exactly that. So thank you so much again, Lindsay. I will have all. Thank you for having me. Of course. I'm going to have all the links to all of your social media in the description of this podcast. Um, You can find Lindsay on Twitter. And are there other um, sites that you'd like to share? Yes, yeah, so I do have my blog at uh, the dopamineflux.com. I do have an Instagram um, by the same name, the dopamine, dopamine flux, you know, and put the at symbol and and that's about it. Great. So. Right? That's perfect. Yep. And again, I'll have all of the links shared in the um, description of this episode and Lindsay, thank you again so much. This was such an incredible soul chat. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Of course. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this week's episode. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and tune in next week for a new topic. To help spread the good vibes, please share this episode with friends and family. Or if you share on social, be sure to tag me at Coach Lizzie.